Hey people, welcome once again. Steve-O's Music News. It's a Friday, the 8th day of October. This would be episode number 34. And it was pointed out to me today that this would be the one-year mark. Okay, so a couple of things about this. One-year mark for this podcast when we first started it in uh, 2020. But it's also been two months to the day since I last did a podcast. So, okay, summer break is over. Time to get back to it and, and see what's going on. So we're recording this again, episode 34, on a Friday, the 8th day of October. And to those of you that get this uh, automatically into your queues or whatever, thank you again for uh, continuing to listen and to support this. And uh, we're going to get back on a uh, on a regular basis with this thing. So glad you're aboard. And you know what? I want to start out right now. I've got a variety of topics that I want to I want to cover tonight. I'm actually recording this in the evening now. And I want to lead off. I've got some new album release stuff to talk about, some stuff in music history. The Doobie Brothers, they're they're on my mind right now because they just came out with a new album about a week ago called Liberté. And they've got this brand new tour underway as well. They actually did a show down in Green Bay not all that long ago. Uh it features 12 new songs from Doobie Brothers mainstays Tom Johnston, Pat Simmons, and John McPhee. Now, Michael McDonald, who is on the tour, is not on the album. This He's actually on the tour for the first time in 25 years. Their 15th album was produced and co-written by a guy named John Shanks. He has previously worked with Bon Jovi, Cheryl Crow and Miley Cyrus, and the uh, the 50th anniversary tour. That's exactly what they're billing it. Actually, kicked off August 22nd in Des Moines. It's interesting. I, beyond talking about the new album, the like many legacy bands, the Doobie Brothers evolved into a second phase that often bore little resemblance to the first and. You see that with other bands. I'd have to sit down and actually dig out. It certainly happens when lead singers change. Um, so really, it's an, an intriguing uh, dichotomy of the band, I guess is the word we're looking for. With founding frontman Tom Johnston, the Doobie Brothers offered a 70s-specific mix of what you got out of was a biker, bar boogie, and country-inflected roots music. Uh, the latter was often supplied by uh, constant band member Patrick Simmons. And then with Michael McDonald, they turned to a sleeker, more soulful sound at the turn of the 80s, even though McDonald really came aboard in 76 with the uh, Taking It to the Streets album. So we always come across this divide in a sense. Fans are either on the Tom Johnston side of the band or the Michael McDonald side so what's interesting, though, is that there was a lot of balance in both, I don't know if you want to say eras of the band. I mean, the uh, the Johnston era had three platinum or multi-platinum albums, including the uh, top five, two million selling album called What Were Once Vices Are Now Habits, which included the singles Another Park, Another Sunday, and then later on, Blackwater in early 75. They also struck gold twice with 1975 Stampede and the 1989 reunion album Cycles. 
They had three platinum or multi-platinum albums with McDonald, including the blockbuster number one, three million selling minute by minute. That included What a Fool Believes. He also helmed 1977's Living on the Fault Line, which likewise went gold. So, as I mentioned, they both uh, both incarnations had a number one single. Simmons sang Black Water, and then McDonald did What a Fool Believes. Simmons bridged the gap into the modern re- reunion era as a revitalized Johnston helped 1989's The Doctor become a top ten single. But McDonald still occasionally returned to their orbit. He co-wrote a few songs on Cycles. I'm sorry, he wrote one song on Cycles. And he sang a duet with Simmons on 2010's World Gone Crazy while also joining them on stage. Um, I'm talking about this now because it's always fun to bring up. Personally, I've always been kind of more into the Michael McDonald era. But I tell you what, it's, it's all good to me. Love the Doobie Brothers. So the new album, Liberté, just came out. New album that came out actually today, Friday, October 8th, and this is in country right now. i got a few country notes. Reba McIntyre released her three-album set called Revived, Remixed, Revisited, and it, it includes some of her biggest hits recorded with her touring band. It puts a new spin on some of the songs, and revisited, actually, let me back that up again, remixed, puts a new spin on some of the songs, and revisited our songs that she recut with Grammy-winning producer Dave Cobb. Reba told Variety, quote, I've been continuing to make new albums, and we haven't really spent the time to slow down enough to visit, uh, revisit, rather, and work the catalog and remind people of what we've done in the past. I'm really a forward thinker, so that was a little out of my realm Interesting, again, three-album set that is available today if you are a Reba McIntyre fan. Also, as far as country goes, Old Dominion's new album, Time, Tequila, and Therapy, is available now. They're the guys who came onto the scene back about six years ago with the number one song called Break Up With Him. What's also interesting about the new song, uh, new album, 13 songs on it, they were able to get the legendary Gladys Knight to join the band on the lonely side of town. Band member Matthew Ramsey jokes that they can't even say that this is a collaboration. It's a bucket list item because it's so amazing that they never thought to add it to their bucket list. But uh, yeah, they got Gladys Knight to sing on their album. Again, Time Tequila and Therapy that is available now. All right, so Blake Shelton recently put out the album called Body Language. Get this. He's already putting out a deluxe version of the album, which is going to contain the song that he wrote for his wife Gwen Stefani for their wedding. It's called We Can Reach the Stars. Um, He says, I didn't feel pressure to put it on there because I didn't know, or rather she didn't know that I was going to do it. So... I felt like there was really no bar to set right here. So if you can't get enough of Blake Shelton and you want that extra song, we can reach the stars on the Body Language Deluxe version, which is coming out on December 3rd. All right, I want to mention this one here because there's a little bit of a uh, personal tie to me here. Mitchell Tenpenny has a Christmas album due uh, on October 29th. And I say Mitchell Tenpenny because uh, my nephew Brendan Orchard, who was on, I think it was the last 
podcast we did maybe two months ago. Brendan was here. We were talking. He's touring with uh, RCA's Drew Green, and they're actually playing some gigs right now with Mitchell Tenpenny. So I thought, well, this is a good way to talk about this a little bit. In fact, let me give a plug for Drew Green. His uh, his EP, Dirt Boy Volume 2, is due October 29th, and right now they're currently working a single called Cold Beer and Copenhagen. As far as Tenpenny, he's really got a Christmas album, which, again, I mentioned it's on the 29th. It will feature five original Christmas songs and six classics. Mitchell says, I love all Christmas music. It always brings me back to my childhood and sharing the holidays with my family. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is probably my favorite of all time. Makes me think of sitting by the fire and watching Christmas movies, but I love that I was able to write a few new songs that are included, too. Naughty List. Again, that's the name of the album. It'll be available on streaming and digital platforms. And again, one more time, on October 29th. We just crossed the anniversary, and it came up quick, of the one-year passing of Van Halen's Eddie Van Halen. And his son, Wolfgang, just paid an emotional tribute to his dad, saying that he was not okay doubted he ever would be after the guitar legend's cancer battle ended at the age of 65. He added that he found it difficult to keep going and asked his dad to keep watch on him. He says, quote, you fought so hard for so long, but you were still taken away. It's just so unfair. I'm not okay. I don't think I'll ever be okay. There's so much I wish I could show you. So many things I wish I could share with you. I wish I could laugh with you again. I wish I could hug you again. I miss you so much, it hurts. But again, it it was hard to believe. We uh, some of some of us were like, "Wow, it was a quick year." And again, it was a year ago, really about uh, I think it was yesterday that uh, uh, became the one year mark right there. So Wolfgang Van Halen, there has been no uh, official talk yet on any kind of a show that would be a tribute to his dad. Uh, we'll see how that all plays out down the line. Okay. Oh, I did have one other album that I wanted to mention briefly, more or less about a song that's out, but you've been hearing talk about Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. They have a new album coming out. They released a song called High and Lonesome from their upcoming album called Raise the Roof. Now, that is the only original track on the album which follows in the footsteps of their multi-award winning 2007 release called Raising Sand. Uh, addressing the fact that the albums will have arrived 14 years apart, Plant recently reflected that it was a strength rather than a weakness, saying, quote, most musicians form a band, then they stay in the band until it's over 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whatever it is, and it starts to look sadly decrepit. It's like people hanging on to a life raft or staying in a comfortable place. With us two... There is nothing written in blood. We were ready to do something new, and we knew how good it was before. So we just join up again and see where it goes. We've got nothing to lose. He said he regarded his rock background and Krauss's country background as another strength, saying, I thought I'd got America down, but here was this whole world of country music I'd not encountered. That's the great thing about me and Allison. We're ably supported by a world of beautiful music, that one or the other of us doesn't know too much about. Allison went on to say that Robert's singing is the epitome of freedom and spontaneity. 
And I'm pretty regimented, but there is a romance in contrast. So they've called the album Raise the Roof. That is due November 19th. And they also plan to uh, do some touring in support of the record. That doesn't look like it's going to happen, though, until next year. All right, so everybody that knows me knows I'm a big fan of Billboard, the Billboard charts, uh, the older Billboard charts. Uh, sadly, over the years, as I've gotten older, I've kind of gotten away from following the Billboard Hot 100. I still try to keep tabs in the album charts, certainly the country charts, because that is the format that I work. However, they do have a new pop singles book on the way, courtesy of Joel Whitburn's Record Research, which is worth uh, a few comments. They're actually going ahead and doing a... Uh, I'm opening the flyer up here. They're doing another top pop singles book. This has got some people in different camps here because what they're doing is they're taking this book. It's uh, top pop singles. The first one is called uh, Volume 1, the 17th edition, 1955 to 1989. Uh, so, again, the 17th edition is to span a couple of volumes. I just mentioned the first one. Volume 2 is going to be dated 1990 to 2021. It'll be released in early 2022. Basically, Volume 1 covers the vinyl record era with even more facts and stats than ever. In fact, they've even got a limited color edition which is going to be pricey. It's going to be 150 bucks. The meantime, though, uh, the, the, the big problem some of us have with two volumes is that there will be some overlapping of artists that may have charted in the late 80s and then into the 90s and beyond. For my money, I personally will not be picking up this book. They did release a book... It was only three years ago their last Top Pop Singles book came out, but they do keep that one current. My last book was about uh, the 2015 version, and as I found that my interest in current hit music, they used to call it contemporary hit radio, you know, CHR, uh, just, I'm, I'm just getting away from the music. I found that the books that I currently have are more than enough, and... I give all due respect to Joel Whitburn and Record Research. I have probably 30 different Whitburn books here in my collection. Some of them I even keep at uh, the radio station that I work at. But anyways, if you're into the books, uh, do a little bit of a search on this. The uh, Google search yourself. And again, it's available in black and white. Top Pop Singles, 17th edition, volume 1, is... Uh, slated to come out at the end of October of 2021. All right, well, there were a couple of birthdays that came out here in the last week that I really wanted to touch on because they include giants in the world of classic rock radio. And Steve Miller was one of those birthdays. He just came out, uh, uh, his happened on the 5th, 78 years of age for Steve Miller, always a favorite of mine in the 70s. But he was somebody that really started charting really before I really started paying too much attention to music with 1968's Children of the Future. That got up to number 134 back in 1968. But then during the 70s and into the 80s, he really got on a roll. The Joker was a, that was really his first big commercial hit and album. The album went to number two in, uh, uh, late 73 when it came out, early 74. The single was uh, a number one pop hit. 
Uh, the album got to number two. Fly Like an Eagle came a couple of years later, and then he was off and running. Uh, that album spent uh, three weeks at number three in 76, sold four million copies. Book of Dreams came out almost right away because I think he had said that both albums were really recorded about the same time. Big number two album stretched uh, from 77 into 78. Three million copies sold. And then, this is the biggie for him, his greatest hits album that came out in late 78. It only reached number 18, but it went on to sell 13 million copies, diamond certified. Whenever you sell 10 million copies, you have a diamond certified album. And then he even got another number one single in 1982 when Abracadabra topped the charts. And that spent six weeks at uh, number three. All right, so he was 78 on October 5th. And then on yeah, yesterday, October 7th, it was John Mellencamp's birthday. Started out as John Cougar. Then John Cougar Mellencamp, you know, he had to use that name when he got his first record label. His biggest album to date, American Fool, spent nine weeks at number one in 1982. It sold five million copies and included the big number one single, Jack and Diane. But uh, Mellencamp, 70 years of age, he had 22 top 40 pop singles. Ten of those made the top ten. And again, Jack and Diane was the only one to go to number one. Cherry Bomb, I think, will probably always be my favorite by him. Top 10 record back around 87. And uh, another good one I've always liked, it was his number two single, R-O-C-K, in the USA. One more time, John Mellencamp, 70 years of age, on October 7th. All right, so as we get ready to wind things down for, I guess you could say, my comeback version here. Again, it was... Two months ago today that I last did a podcast, but it was one year ago today that we actually got this thing going. And we are now at episode 34. And as I wrap things up, I, I want to finish up with something that I came across earlier today regarding the Bee Gees, who had a big-time commercial fall from grace about this time 40 years ago, and it was directly tied to changing attitudes about disco music as the 80s loomed, and the band members themselves were even pondering what was to be. You know, the Bee Gees had such a varied career. Some people prefer the, you know, we were talking about the Doobie Brothers earlier in the different versions. Well, the Bee Gees never had any personnel changes when they were charting in the 60s, they were more melodic, more more ballads. Uh, they were not the disco act that they turned into starting with 1975's album called Main Course. But then you get into the Main Course album and then uh, Children of the World, which had You Should Be Dancing on it. Then you get into the Saturday Night Fever and that whole era there. It would they were it was just huge. The Bee Gees were disco kings, but, you know, when you do something like that, you get that kind of popularity, it's inevitable that there is going to be a fall. Now, their longtime producer, Albie Galutin, said back in 2000, in fact, he said it for the uh, collection called The Bee Gees' Tales of the Brothers Gibb, there was a tremendous fear as they were getting ready to record this uh, next album that they had fallen into a rut. The album in question was Living Eyes, 
He says when we started working on what would be that album, and actually their 16th album, it wasn't fun. He says, I remember sitting around with my friends at the time and saying, you know what, it's just not working, and I think that I'm going to leave. Now, part of the disconnect in the studio may have stemmed from the brothers' rustiness as a collective group. Now, all three had contributed to outside projects as the decade turned, and reconvening wasn't without its difficulties. Okay, with a large portion of radio stations refusing to play Bee Gees records in the midst of the anti-disco movement, it was time for a new approach. Now, Barry Gibbs' R&B falsetto had dominated the group's lead vocals throughout the late 70s, but a change in style would also prompt a shift at the mic. Barry recalled that every falsetto record we were putting out was a monster, and I didn't think we should change it yet. But we also decided, hey, it's time that maybe Robin has a lead. Or how about Morris? His voice, it's important that his voice gets heard as well. And it's becoming less important that I get heard, and that's the way we work. There's no ego within the three of us. Whoever's singing most or whoever has the most hits is irrelevant. So session musicians also took the place of the band that had recorded and toured with the Bee Gees in the late 70s. Some of the newcomers included people like Don Felder of the Eagles and uh, studio veterans like Jeff Percaro, who was with Toto, and also Steely Dan. Now, most of Living Eyes, with the notable exception of a song called Soldiers, ended up avoiding Barry's falsetto. It was a commercial risk that may have appealed a bit more to anti-disco consumers, but likely wasn't going to go over as well with Saturday Night Fever fans, and that was indeed the case. When it came out, the album fared poorly on the charts after its October 1981 release. It started out at number 73 in Great Britain, and it landed just outside of the top 40 in America. Barry Gibbs says that there were larger forces at work once again. He said, I've come to the conclusion that if you have too much success in this business... The business turns against you. In fact, he actually said that back in 1987. But we also had some bad luck. Besides the disco backlash, Living Eyes came out while our previous label, RSO, was in the process of shutting down. The week it came out, the president of the company was fired. Now, maybe a little bit of a silver lining. In the end, Living Eyes ended up making history it was selected to be manufactured as a compact disc in 1981 for demonstration purposes on the BBC television program Tomorrow's World. CDs, though, weren't really coming along until about 1984 and 85. So, Living Eyes, yeah, it was a flop. It arrived two years after their compilation set called Bee Gees Greatest. That topped the charts for one week back in 1979. Living Eyes would peak at number 41, only spending 12 weeks on the charts. There were two singles to make Billboard's Hot 100. He's a Liar was first, peaking at number 30. It was followed by the title track, which would peak at number 45. Personally, I have a little bit of a soft spot for the Living Eyes album. Not a lot that stands out to me, but there are a few songs that I, you know, I can play that album, I can listen to it. I mean, by then... Clearly, they were no longer the juggernauts with the albums like Saturday Night Fever and even the follow-up, Spirits Having Flown. That album alone in 79 also had 
three number one singles. Bee Gees would go on later on in the 80s. They'd actually, they'd, they'd actually compose and do music for the Stand Alive soundtrack and album. That was the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, which had John Travolta again in the... Uh, in the movie and in the sequel. Songs weren't that big there, but they did get another top 10 around 1989 with a single called One. So the Bee Gees uh, were still selling records, still selling singles, but it was nothing like that stretch there from 1975 to uh, 1980. And of course, the guys were doing solo work and producing for other people, Barry Gibb working with Barbara Streisand. So anyways, that's a look back at something that happened about 40 years ago. If you've got access to any kind of a music service, you might want to dig that album out. Take a look for it, Bee Gees, Living Eyes. All right, so there we are. We are at the tail end, right, in fact, right at the very end of episode number 34 today. Don't forget, you can catch me Monday through Friday, 2P to 7P on Frog Country 101.5. That is WJNR Radio, WJNRRadio.com. We stream 24-7. And also don't forget about uh, Steve-O's Forgotten 45 on WHTO 106.7. That is Monday, Wednesday, Friday at about 7.45, playing a song that you probably haven't heard in a while but was on the charts at some point. Once again, thanks to my daughter, Sarah, for getting me all set up again. We'll get back to you real soon. Thanks again for listening. Steve-O's Music News.